Well, it's uh, a privilege to be with you um, in your PW service. Uh, my name is Derek Lowstone, and I come from County Donegal. And I've been serving with the Board of Mission overseas for the past 11 years. And indeed, as I was farming, and from a farming background in County Donegal, and you see our, our first slide is far removed from Kenya, but that's where I heard the call of the kingdom, the call to go and serve God overseas. And uh, I think it's very appropriate that we just sung that hymn because it's, we all have to move from somewhere. And as I was uh, working at home in the family farm, I felt that call of God on my life to go and serve him in Kenya. Now, it was a call that worked differently for me and for my wife, Linda, and took a little bit of time to, to sort out, but it was a very strong call nonetheless. And we have been working in Kenya uh, for the past 11 years, as, as I've said. Get the next slide up. And uh, for three of those years, we were working in a place called Honey Farm, just north of Nairobi. And during that time, we heard about a community in Galana. And uh, a, a member from that community came, approached us, and said, look, would you consider coming and helping us? And so we said, look, we'll, we'll come and have a look but we'll have to see just what God's plan is. And when we went there, we saw a community that was really in the, suffering with extreme poverty. Um, a community that were hunter-gatherers uh, that lived on the edge of Savo National Park. And I know Kenya is known uh, to a lot of us as a tourist destination where people can go and marvel at, at uh, the, the wildlife that's there. These people were hunter-gatherers and they lived in the Savo area, which is a huge, vast tract of land the size of uh, Wales as a country. And in the 40s, it was set up as a national park. And all the people that lived in there were told to leave. They had to leave. So the community that we were working with were uh, from that area. So they were displaced from their homeland and really were not given anywhere to, to go to. On top of that, they were then told that they had to stop hunting. So now they had nowhere to go and they didn't have a, uh, a profession or a means of sustaining their livelihood. Um, next slide. Uh, they used, their whole mythology and culture was based on hunting elephant and they hunted these uh, magnificent animals with bows and arrows. And now that needed a lot of skill and courage and they had to stalk within 10 to 15 yards of their prey. So they were very skilled, but these were skills now that they could no longer practice. Or if they did, it would mean, uh, if they were caught, it would mean prison for them. And up to three years, would, they would have to serve if they were caught poaching. Um, for many of them, life was, uh, was a complete challenge. And as we went and, and met with the community, you know, it just was such a depressing and oppressive atmosphere. So much so that these people could hardly hold eye contact with you. Any contact that they had with the outer world, and it was very little, they were in a sort of a cul-de-sac, cut off completely um, from the, the local authorities. And uh, any contact, it was always people coming to see if they were poaching or, or you know, to capture them for poaching. So it was, they were very um, suppressed and oppressed. 
And uh, yet it was an area that I could see and others could see from an agricultural point of view that it had potential. But these people were now living on famine relief food for over half of every year. And they tried, they did try to farm, but that was failure after failure. And when we asked them about their crops and the variety of uh, maize that they would have planted, we see a crop failure here. They just told us, you know, we plant the famine relief food that the government gives us. Now, this would have been maize that was grown probably in the savannas of, uh, or in the prairies of the United States. And now they were trying to grow them in the lowlands or the savannas of Africa. And then on top of that, they were actually planting it too densely. They weren't using the right crop spacing. So it was doomed to failure. And it reminds us of that verse in Hosea that uh, my people perish because of the lack of knowledge. And this was something that was so evident that they had no real knowledge of agriculture. So they said to us, look, we need help. We, we don't know how to farm. We have no schools for our children. Very few of our children go to school. The nearest primary school is 25 kilometers away. And they have to walk through bush that's inhabited with elephant and buffalo. Then they have to try and find somewhere to stay because they can't come back on the same day the journey is so long. We have nowhere to go if we're sick. The nearest um, government health clinic is 35 kilometers away. And then we have to cross the Galana River, which is infested with hippo and crocodile. So if you had a child and you wanted your child to be immunized, you had to make this uh, treacherous journey uh, to avail of, of that facility. So they were really uh, in a, a situation that seemed worse than desperate. Yet it did have potential, and we realized that this soil was very fertile. They were living on the banks of the Galana River, if you can imagine uh, 20 kilometers of river banks, there was about 14 villages on either side of the river. And uh, this was a river that, uh, it's the second largest river in Kenya. It flowed all year round, so they did have water supply. And by bringing in these small pumps, we were able to start small-scale irrigation. Now, a pump like this could irrigate up to an acre of land, which was more than enough for a family to, to get a living from and have crops to sell. And uh, by giving them the right seeds and the right uh, means of planting them, the uh, results were incredible. And very quickly, the, the seeds would germinate in the, in the warm soil. And uh, within a number of months, they could have a real harvest, something tangible to eat and to sell. So we realized that education was going to make a huge difference and it was the key to bringing these people out of poverty into a state of having enough food for themselves and having extra to sell. And we were very um, blessed in that we wrote a proposal to an organization called Gorta, which has its headquarters in Dublin. And we partnered with the Ministry of Agriculture to run a four-year training program in agriculture to train these people in all aspects of agriculture that would be appropriate to their area. And with them, whenever we got this program started, we started to see crops being, being ready for sale. And tomatoes was something that was very encouraging for them and uh, something that was a good cash crop. 
We see these young men with the first creative tomatoes that they took to market to sell. And, you know, the excitement was so tangible. Now these people could go uh, with something that they had produced, they'd grown, they'd watched it all through the stages of, of nursery into planting it out, uh, protecting it against the, against the animals and disease, and now there's something to sell. And whenever they came back from market, you know, it looked as if they were standing about six inches taller than I had first known them when we went there. With their maize, again, by giving them the right variety, teaching them how to plant it in the proper way, it was just incredible the results that they were getting. And it showed the potential that they had. And this potential was just locked because they didn't know how to, to use it or to utilize it. And during this, as we started in this work, now this is about, we're covering a period of about six years this morning as we look at bringing them from uh, a level of uh, extreme poverty to a, a community that are now self-sufficient. And during this time, we had opportunities to talk to them, to talk to them about Jesus Christ, the one that died for them, that rose from the death and conquered sin, that called us as missionaries to come and be with them and to love them. And, you know, as we talked, they listened because they realized that we really cared. We were concerned about their everyday life, about their children that didn't have an education, about the hunger that they had to face annually, and about the extreme dangers that the river posed to them as they crossed it. On, on the way and during the years, we met young men that were very keen and very quick to adapt the practices that were being taught. And this young man, Emmanuel, was one of these. And Emmanuel uh, had got to primary school, and his father had managed to get him through secondary school. And uh, we then, through the generosity of people like yourselves here in Ireland, were able to put him through agricultural college. And he went uh, to college. Then he came back, and he became our agricultural extension officer. So he was there able to help the farmers with any problems that they would uh, encounter with their crops or their animals. And uh, he's here holding uh, two young kids from a variety of goat that we introduced to try and improve their breeding of animals. And uh, this was the Gala goat. It's indigenous to Kenya, but a very, uh, you know, in comparison to what they had, this, this was such a superior breed for the people there. And this gentleman is the responsible for the two young kids that Emmanuel is holding. And these goats, as they grew alongside the local goats, they would almost, be, they would be double in size. And you could see this happening. And it was very easy to spot because these goats were either all white or three quarters white. And the local goats were either, almost either all black or black and brown. So you could see them in the fields and the community could see the difference that uh, this breed was making. So again, it was very exciting for them to see potential and how properly managed their flocks could produce twice as much uh, without increasing the number. And the sale of these goats was bringing in maybe 18, 20 pounds, whereas the sale of their small goats was only bringing in maybe 8 or 10 pounds. So it was actually quite a difference. And that happened within one breeding cycle. So it was a very exciting time for us to be able to help them to see the potential. 
But you can imagine how exciting it was for them to see that the potential that they had in their own area. This all was happening in the backdrop of the Galana River, a river that was a blessing and a curse. It provided water, and in Kenya they say water is life. But also as people crossed this river to go to market, to visit their friends and relatives, uh, to go to school, there was always the danger of being attacked by a crocodile. And this was a very, very real threat. And during the time that we have been in Galana, we've witnessed and we've seen a number of people taken to a very horrific death indeed. And we had only started working with the community a few weeks when two people were taken by a crocodile and lost their life uh, to these, uh, I mean, just horrific uh, situation. And so from that moment, we thought and we prayed as to how we could get some safe passage for these people to cross the river. The river, however, was very wide. It was, in most places, 200 meters in width. And to get a bridge of any form to cross that was going to need a considerable uh, amount of funding, as well as getting the appropriate design that you could bring into a very remote area. Galana was about two hours off the tarmac, so there's no way that, that we were going to get big earth-moving equipment in there uh, relatively easy and also materials to build a bridge. So it was a challenge, but we prayed, and we prayed to God that we knew would give us hope and give some form of solution. We also started to address the issue of education. And this was something that was very much to the fore of these people. If we were to have a workshop on beekeeping, for instance, and we'd congregate all the farmers together, before we get the meeting started, they would say, um, what about the school? What about the primary school? Any word about the primary school? And, uh, you know, it was something that they really earnestly desired to have a primary school for their children. And we started to narrate the story here, back here in Ireland. And very quickly, people got on board and started to raise funds. And uh, while fundraising was ongoing, we realized, you know, it's going to be a challenge to get teachers to teach in this school because Galana would be the equivalent of Siberia to us. It was an area that was so remote. Uh, there was no um, public transport to get there. Um, to get to Galana, you got a bus to a place called Chakama, and then you walked for another day, to get, and you had to cross the river. So for people who had an education and were qualified as teachers, to get them to go and work in Galana was going to be quite a challenge. And again, we scouted the area. Now, we're working with a community of about 2,000 souls in it, and we got these five young men who, again, some of them had finished secondary school, others had dropped out, but we were able to then link them with, with institutions that could take them a step forward in their education. And two of them became fully qualified primary school teachers, and three of them became early childhood development teachers. And uh, the three, they did their certificate first, and now they've gone on to do their diploma. And uh, they were to be uh, not some of the first teachers in the new school. In fact, we started the school in a mud hut, but, and we thought if we could get enough funds to build one classroom uh, in one year, or sorry, four classrooms in one year and a block, and then the, the next year 
we try and build another four classrooms and in the following year we had plans to build a clinic but the donations and the generosity of the people here in Ireland were such that we were able to build everything in one year. And we see from this aerial photograph the compound. Uh, this was 20 acres of land that was donated to the project by a local person. And in the four, um, we have, if we can just go back to that slightly, our, our school, um, two blocks together. And then we've got some in the center of the photograph. We have some accommodation for teaching staff and clinical staff. And then to this side, we have our clinic. And then in the background, we see where the river is and actually the site where the new bridge was built. This year will be the first time that the school will have a class 8 that will sit the uh, national exams for primary schools. And this is the class here. And they, during this week, will do their final exams. Now this is very important both for them and also for the school. In Kenya today, for every two children that leave primary school, only one of them will get a place in secondary school. And uh, that's an acute shortage of secondary schools. And for them to get that place, they have to get a certain mark in their exams. And so these children will, have, will be sitting their exams this week and depending on the result and how well they've studied, will really, uh, they'll know if they will get an opportunity to go to secondary school or not. Now, I was out on the 28th um, of October for the official opening of the footbridge and the new church in Galana. And uh, the headmaster called me over and he was very excited and he says, you know, we've just done our mock exams and this school has come top out of 19 schools in the district and he says we want this to be a model school and I think what a testimony to God that, that he's able to do that in this remote area of Kenya. All of this was happening as I said through as friendship evangelism was taking place and within time we had a nucleus of believers that started the first church that met in the classroom um, in uh, the new school and that group met faithfully every Sunday started off with six people started to grow next thing there was 12 then there was 24 then there was 36 today there's over 50 people meeting in that church uh, over a period that of growth within uh, three years and um, last uh, about 18 months ago they did a mission in another part of the project and they had a lot of support from the PCEA church. That's our sister church in Kenya, the Presbyterian Church of East Africa. And Melindi was the church that took this mission on board. And we see here the Reverend Patrick Mudungu in the photograph. And he and his team with the new believers in Galana went to this other area for a week's mission. They started off with door-to-door, -door, introducing themselves, inviting people along to meetings. And then they had uh, a, a, like an outdoor meeting on the Sunday of that week. And over 40 people came to faith uh, during that week of mission. It was just incredible. And so much so that these people now have felt that they wanted to start uh, their own church. It's about 8 kilometers from the first church. So we've now got two new churches in the Galana area. 
And uh, just incredible to see the way that God is establishing his kingdom in an area that was unreached where very few knew about uh, our, the, the work of Jesus and, and the gospel. And now today it's well known, but not only that, people are seeing the other aspects of Christian life. They're seeing their children being educated. They're seeing health care. They, they, they have ways and means of farming and supporting their, themselves and selling crops to, to make money to help them have a better quality of life. Life, as we read, an, an abundance life in all its fullness. The new church building was started in July of this year and was opened on the 28th of October this year. And uh, on the 27th of October at 11.30 or 12.30 at night, they were still working on it. Uh, it was quite a rush to get it finished, but uh, it was just an incredible experience to be there and to be involved with them during that exciting time. Now, we have been on home furlough since the beginning of July. July. We came home on the 3rd, and we had a farewell party with the community. And at that point, the foundations weren't even marked out. So, I mean, it's incredible how quick this building got off the, the ground and uh, how well finished it is. And we're just delighted uh, that we've been able to be there and, and share with them in the opening of it. And uh, we know that today they will have already had their Sunday service. And it's just, you know, a few weeks old. So there's great excitement and a great uh, uh, time of encouragement for them. Now, my wife, Linda, um, very, has been very interested in arts and craft and uh, was looking for ways in which to involve the woman from that area. And we have two teenage daughters as well as a seven-year-old son. And the girls, Laura, Jane, and Amy, are currently in secondary school in Wesley College in Dublin. And during the longer holidays, they come out to be with us. And uh, in the south, you know, it's a great place to be a teacher because they get June, July, and August off. Uh, so, but for parents, that's quite a challenge to keep two teenagers occupied for three months. And we always try to get a project for them to get involved with when they come out. And Linda said, you know, I think if we had some uh, potatoes and we did some printing on fabric, maybe we could get some crafts together that the women could participate in. And I, being a farmer, objected and said, no, you're not using potatoes. That's good food. Uh, go to the beach and have a look for the old flip-flops that are washed up in the tide. And you can use that for, for your stencil for printing. And they did that. And uh, they started to print these uh, uh, pieces of fabric and cut out little designs. Great industrious uh, work, and it kept the girls well occupied. And Linda then started to print them and make placemats and tea cozies and all sorts of things. And um, there was great, you know, there was, there was I mean, in the, in the house there was stuff everywhere, you can imagine. And uh, you don't leave your flip-flop down or your toothbrush. It could be taken away and cut into the shape of an elephant or something. But then she said, you know, we need to go and see if people would actually buy this or is this something that would sell? And she took it to a craft fair in one of the hotels and there was an incredible amount of interest and people said, look, we would really love to have this in our shop or buy it or could you make coffee pot covers and things were just mushrooming. And so then she went to the, the church and started to help with the women's group to see if 
you know, to teach them how to do it. And this started off with about six or eight women and became a very special time of fellowship for them. They'd always, at some point, have a, a prayer and a Bible reading and they'd get to talk about the real challenges and issues of life and bringing up children and one thing and another and a great time of fellowship for them all, as well as being a, a time of industry and giving them a means to earn a little bit more to help with those extra things that they needed. Um, this lady Alice was deaf and dumb, but she could sew. And uh, in Kenya, there's like uh, other parts of the UK here, there is a move to try and get away from plastic bags and having more sustainable way of doing your shopping. And uh, uh, Alice here has made some bags out of sisal just for that, for shopping. And uh, there was a, an, an organization, a Christian conservation organization called Arosha, and they were trying to promote the same. And Linda one day when she was passing uh, took a photograph of their motif and she gave it to Alice who quickly embroidered it on, on the bag. And uh, Linda took a sample of, of this bag to Arosha and they were just praying and they were having a management meeting talking about how to, to have you know, a bag for life or a more sustainable way of, of promoting shopping bags. And Linda arrived with the sample and they just couldn't believe it. She, they said, you know, you wouldn't believe it. We've just been praying about this. And here you arrive with the sample, taking all the hard work out of it. And so we were able to connect Alice with this group. And she's made a number of bags for them now. And uh, they're reordering. So it's a, a way in which she has, has been helped just by using her practical skills. While Linda was getting um, totally submersed in her work with the woman, I was getting submersed in the river because at this stage we now had contacted an organization called Bridging the Gap and they said, you know, we feel we could get a design uh, for your river and make it possible to put a bridge across this river. Uh, the, the design came from an organization called Helvetos, which is a Swiss organization that put this design together in conjunction with the Nepalese government in Nepal. So the bridge is designed to, in small pieces that can be bolted together and basically carried by foot into very remote parts of, uh, of the Himalaya mountains in Nepal. And so it was just seemed ideal for Galana being in such a remote area. We did the survey and the site uh, for the bridge was just about less than half a mile from the school and clinic and we did extensive walking in the river to see where other areas if they're, if they're more suitable and we were able to get an area there that the bridge would be 112 meters in length and we were then discussing with uh, Gorta in Dublin that we now had a design and we may be coming back to them looking for some help with funding and they uh, had a meeting with an organization, a, a multinational AIG. Um, the employees of AIG in Dublin, there's about a hundred of them, felt that they wanted to get together and do something as employees to raise funds for a development project. And they came to Gorta and said, look, we would like to, to do something with you uh, and we would like to do it in Kenya because we have an office in Nairobi. And um, we were thinking of something nuts and bolts 
and they said, this is, this is great, you know, what sort of funding do you think you would be able to raise? And they said, well, you know, we would hope to raise 50,000 euros and we would hope that the corporation AIG would put another 50,000 to it. And um, so Gorta thought for a minute and they said, you know, we don't actually, they said to themselves, we don't have a project of that size in Kenya, but would you consider having multiple projects all over Kenya? And they said it would be better possibly if it was in one place. And then they remembered, the Gorta people remembered our footbridge and they started to narrate the story to, a, to these AIG employees and they said, look, this is our project. We would be delighted to try and raise funds uh, to, to, you know, for children crossing the river safely and everything else. It would be such a worthwhile project. And so they set themselves the tasks of, of raising the 50,000. Now AIG and the financial crisis almost went under. Um, the cooperation never came up with to match the, what the employees raised, but the employees exceeded their target and raised 70,000, and uh, Gorta came up with the, the balance of the funding to make this footbridge a reality. It was quite a challenge uh, getting it, the, the pieces uh, on all the um, materials to site, and also uh, there was, you know, everything had to be done by by pick and shovel and wheelbarrow. But nonetheless, uh, Bridging the Gap did a, a great work and mobilizing the community. They were very enthusiastic and it was just great to see it all coming together. The anchor on the southern side uh, was dug into sand and clay. Um, it was 16 feet down and in that placed the, the steel for, for the reinforcing. And then on top of that steel, we had to pour 70 tons of concrete. And all of this was mixed by a mixer. You just couldn't call up your ready-mix lorries or whatever. So it was quite a challenge. And to get the material onto site in the remote area was also a challenge. And in Galana, it would be dry for 360 days of the year and wet for five. Now, I know that's a big contrast just here in Ireland. But we seem to know the wet days. And um, the day that we would... Uh, arranged for the lorry to come with supplies would be one of the days that it would be raining. But nonetheless, work progressed and it started in July 2008 and the bridge was completed in July 2009. At the bridge site itself we had two stores, one on either side, and building was going on on both sides of the river. And the thing that you needed or the tool seemed to always be in the store on the other side of the river. And we were grateful to a local boatyard that donated this little boat to allow us to ferry ourselves over and back. As the construction started to take shape, it was a suspension footbridge design, which is like your Golden Gate bridge in the United States. And uh, for the community, they were totally baffled how this was going to work. And they, you know, were questioning us, saying, well, will we have to walk right up to the top of that tower to cross the bridge? And we said, no, 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 that's, this is just where the cables will be hung from. And uh, in fact, we built a small model at the bridge site to show them how it would work and also to show the mechanics and how it's so important that your anchor is well and truly set on the ground. And, you know, they had to refill the anchor and pa compact the soil back in 
um, filling it a foot at a time, compacting it, adding water. And we actually, in the model, were able to overload the bridge and the two anchors popped up out of either side. And it was a, a real you know, example of what would happen if they didn't put the soil back in well again. The children, of course, I mean, it was just going to be a dream come true for them. Uh, we had over 100 children crossing daily uh, the river um, over and back to go to school. And then some months of the year when the river was in flood, they just couldn't get to school. And we had to try and make arrangements to keep them uh, at the school and, and give them accommodation and feed them there. And uh, for them, the realization of having a bridge would just be a dream come true. And it is a dream come true. And uh, for the uh, official opening, you know, many people came from far and wide to see it. And it was just incredible. And they you know, couldn't believe that God should bless them so much uh, and help them with, with the struggles of everyday life. And I think for me, one of the things that will remain with me for all my life is uh, I, I saw 12 children going home from school and they got up uh, the, the ramp and raced across the bridge laughing and, and just having you know, great fun and down the other side. And you know the other alternative for them would have been that they'd have to roll up their, their clothes and put their, put their books in a plastic bag and hold it on their head and wade across the river with the thought that maybe one of them wouldn't come out the other side. So I mean it's just really transforming and, and uh, for them, life transforming. Now, this bridge, we've been told, is the longest suspension footbridge in Africa. It's 112 meters in length, and uh, I mean, it's just an incredible structure, and what a testimony to God that, that he can make what we would think the impossible happen. And you know, there's been so much interest in this bridge uh, that you know, so many people have been uh, raising funds and, and, and getting on board that we have now half the funding ready to build a second footbridge. And as people say, you know, God doesn't do things by half. And we are, have a site surveyed, and the most appropriate site for the second footbridge is actually just right where the second new church uh, is now established. So there's something very significant about that, the way God is moving and bringing his blessing to these people. The community have asked me to say thank you uh, to them for making all of this possible. And we know that through the work of the PW, through your United Appeal, it enables us to be uh, with these people in Kenya. They've asked me to say thank you on behalf of the children who can now go to school safely. For all those who are sick, they can get across to the new clinic and, and get medical treatment. The farmers are able to get their produce out to all-weather roads all year round, which enables them to get a, a better price for their produce. And, you know, the work that has happened there and, and through your support here has changed their lives forever. And they want to say uh, just thank you so much. They would really love everybody to come and walk their new bridge. They're so proud of it. And they extend that invitation. And if any of you have, have any um, desire to do so, we can arrange to, to make that happen. And they said, thank you very much. Now, for us as a family, as we go back uh, to Kenya again, we'll be uh, moving to a different area. 
And as this work has continued in Galana, it fell under the, the Pawnee Presbytery of the PCEA Church. And as they did an evaluation on the work, they said, look, there's something very special happening here. We've seen uh, an incredible transformation in these people's lives, in the physical as well as the spiritual. And we've seen how the church has uh, been extended, how people have come to faith, how they've been given hope, real hope. And we want you to think about how you could maybe take this to other parts of the presbytery and even other parts of Kenya and beyond, if that's God's will. And so the, uh, the, the project team thought long and hard about this, and they felt, you know, we would need a new name if we're going to move out beyond Galana. And they came up with the name called uh, Wheat, which, you know, when you look at the scripture, and it's taken from that, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains but a single grain. And when you take a grain of wheat, it seems small and insignificant and uh, not capable of much, but if it's planted in the right way, it can actually sprout and bring forth a great harvest, a harvest that will feed many. And as we go with wheat to work with other communities, we challenge them to bring their grain of wheat, whatever little they have, and it doesn't matter how poor people are, they always have something that they can contribute. They can contribute time or local materials. And if we bring their grains of wheat and we plant it, we can see how communities can be transformed. And wheat also uh, standing for working to improve health, education, agriculture, and environment. And as we seek to look at these issues, we want to uh, bring the gospel of Jesus Christ that can uh, change lives forever. Wheat uh, will undertake the second bridge. Uh, we see a member here from Bangor West at the bridge site uh, in Hawanji. And we'd ask you to remember this work in your prayers. It will also look at uh, building a secondary school outside Mombasa. Now this school is well underway and hopefully will be ready for the first intake of students in January. And we see this as a place where the students that will leave uh, the primary school in Galana, somewhere where they can go and continue with a Christian education. Uh, in the coastal area, the most of the secondary schools are Muslim schools and they don't have the opportunity of, of continuing with a, a Christian education. So a lot of families send their children far away to have that. Wheat has also been challenged with looking at setting up a seed potato uh, a propagation unit. And potatoes are the second most important food crop in Kenya after maize. And in fact, they call uh, potatoes, as we know them, Irish potatoes, and they also have sweet potatoes. Uh, and uh, I, being a, a potato farmer, uh, just felt th that this was something that we could maybe make a huge contribution in. And we're, we're joining together with a number of partners to set up uh, a, a seed propagation unit in the highlands of Mount Kenya. So it will mean that we will have to relocate from Galana to an area called Tamau. Um, and we would ask you to remember this work in your prayers. We're going into a new community, a community of about 20,000 people, uh, much larger than the Galana community. And uh, as we look at this issue of seed potatoes, we see that as an, an entry point into that community where we'll seek to bring God's kingdom and establish his kingdom and that part as well. 
Um, as a family, we want to say Asante Sana Namungu Abariki, which is Swahili for thank you and God bless you. Uh, our two eldest children will continue with their education in Wesley College in Dublin. Laura Jane will finish this year. This is her final year, so the pressure is on. She has a lot of tests, and, and uh, just please remember her and that. For Amy, she will have another two years to do after this year. And then Joshua, who will return back with us to Kenya, will most likely go to boarding school in January. I mean, his, his name is down, and, and that's the plan, and we'll see how that works out. Now, he'll go to the same boarding school that Laura Jane and Amy went to, and we'll, and we'll just hope that it works out. So just remember him in your prayers. The girls had each other, which was a great support for them. Um, Joshua knows a few people at the school, but it always takes time to settle in, so it will be uh, unsettling for him and for us uh, to, to, you know, just to have, not have him around. So remember that, please, in your prayers as we go back again. You can follow this progress uh, on the new website that uh, the Presbyterian Mission Overseas Board has launched, and I would encourage you to do that and to sign up uh, for prayer line which comes out every Wednesday and it's a real opportunity for us to bring things to the focus of uh, people within our church and areas that we want to pray and you know we realize as missionaries that prayer is the work and there's so much happening in the, in the spiritual realms that we don't fully comprehend or know about but we know that many is the day we are ruffling the feathers of Satan and he's not happy with us. So please remember us in prayer. And thank you very much for uh, giving me this opportunity to come and share and to, to show. And I hope encourage you as to what God is doing and how he's establishing his kingdom in Kenya. Thank you.